This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of I Know That Face, the only podcast which honors the often underappreciated by the masses work of character actors. My name is Stephen Portia. My name is Andrew Carroll. Today we are discussing the charismatic and uh, wonderfully versatile Jeffrey Wright. Andrew, run down their history. Yeah, Jeffrey Wright was born in Washington, D.C. in 1965. He studied to become a lawyer but took up acting instead. Halfway through university, he won critical acclaim in the 1990s for his Broadway work in Angels in America and in the film, and later in the film Basquiat. Um, he reprised his Tony-winning Angels in America role for the HBO miniseries for which he won an Emmy and a Golden Globe. Major supporting roles came in The Hunger Games, The 007 series and Syriana. He will play Commissioner James Gordon in 2021's The Batman, putting him in the Character Actor Hall of Fame. And he is an activist for the end of resource-focused conflicts. Hell yeah. Um, you watched Basquiat for this, am I right? I did, yeah. Yeah, and You're not too fond and of it. Continuing, no, continuing the, tr- the trend from last episode, the first movie I watched for the actor and the first kind of film in their career... Uh, I was not a fan of, as with uh, Jennifer Jason Lee in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Yeah, he plays the very famous, gone too soon artist uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat. And, oh, man, it's... I don't know what's wrong with this movie. It's directed by uh, Julian Schnabel, who made um, At Eternity's Gate. Yeah. The one with uh, where uh, Willem Dafoe plays uh, uh, Van Gogh. And, I, to be honest, I could only make make my way half an hour into it before I had to turn it off because it just makes uh, the central character Jean-Michel Basquiat so passive in the center of this kind of like surrounded by all these great actors like there's Dennis Hopper there's David Bowie as um, Andy Warhol Benicio Del Toro is in there as uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat's best friend and it's from the era where Benicio Del Toro looked like someone had just shaved a wolf and put it in front of a camera (laughs) his best era um, and it has Gary Oldman as well in there as like a loose kind of Schnabel character and it just makes the, the, the script and the editing just make Basquiat himself so passive it's like things happen to him and he's never actively grabbing at anything it's like he just falls into fame and wealth which is kind of what happened in real life as well but it never makes it about him it always seems to be about the people around him. Is it a little too loving? I've never seen Basquiat, but I know... I think Julian Schnabel is an artist himself. A painter. Yeah, he was, yeah. So or is, yeah. Is, it yeah. That, is that the issue, that he doesn't really want to kind of create drama on someone he probably yeah, respects a lot? It might be, yeah. Um, st- I think he probably believed he was making the movie about his friend uh, Basquiat, when in reality he kind of just made the movie... A bit more about himself, mm. as the Gary Oldman character kind of shows. But uh, it's funny because at the time, I think, or a few years afterwards, Jeffrey Wright wasn't a fan himself of the perform of the performance. He was not a fan of how his version of Jean Michel Basquiat compared to the real experiences of how black artists are kind of boxed up and presented by predominantly white filmmakers to predominantly white audiences. So it was kind of like. You know the artist selling out, I guess. Mm. And is he um, is he good in, in the movie? Julian Schnabel. He's fine, yeah. But it's like I said, it's the script and the editing just make him seem so. He seems he looks like he's wandering through a dream most of the time because he's so, he's very quiet and passive and 
just never it's very soft spoken and never seems to actually go for anything just the these the miracle that was his career somehow just happens to him and we're never really shown his art because i don't think they had the rights to do it they just created stuff that looked like his stuff so yeah. i don't know it was, it's it's a strange strange movie it's the andre 2000 one. jimmy hendrix thing is not that movie they couldn't use yeah, any Jimi exactly. Hendrix songs. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, or the one that's uh, coming out soon about David Bowie, and they just don't have the rights to any of David Bowie's songs. <laughs> um, it's so funny because I'm going to talk about Ride with the Devil, which was released in 1999, a few years after Basscamp. But I, I've I've heard from some sources that it's Jeffrey Wright's favorite movie of all the ones he's been in. Yeah, I was watching him a video interviewing with him, and he said he really enjoyed it because it's from what he talks about it. Uh, it just seems so different in terms of Civil War movies. That's it. Like So for our Michelle Yo episode, we discussed Ang Lee's masterpiece, Crouch, Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And um, But in 1999, he made his previous movie, Right With The Devil, and it's this American war western starring Tobey Maguire as part of a, this gang of guerrilla fighters or bushwhackers who are fighting for the Confederates during the U.S. Civil War. And, you know, those who know about American history will know that the Confederates were on the wrong side of history, you know, and were pro-slavery. <laughs> and um, the movie's based on this novel by Daniel Woodrell, who wrote uh, Winter's Bone, which uh, was made into a movie starring Jennifer Lawrence, was kind of her big break. And it, it explores why, yeah. why these gangs of young men would join this cause. And it follows them over the years, as many of them are killed in battle. And those who survive start to see sense. Probably because it centers on the bad guys, and despite its cool title, there isn't really a lot of action in the movie. It's very naturalistic. It spends a lot of time on the periods in between fighting in the winter. The movie was a major flop. Like it cost thirty-eight million dollars to make and grossed six hundred thirty-five thousand. Um, wow! Yeah, a massive box office bomb. Like often, yeah. often these movies, you're like, it'll make its money someday. I don't think Ride with the Devil will really ever. And it also got kind of mixed yeah. reviews as well. And it's a film which reminded me yeah. a little bit of the Jennifer Jason Lee movie that Paul Verhoeven directed, Flash and Blood. Because it's it's, oh, yeah. it's yeah. A, an unglamorous, kind of authentic look at a time, often romanticized in films. And it, it kind of denies viewers the cathartic pleasures they'd expect from that type of you know, genre yeah. movie. And I've also seen people compare it to Jarhead, which I think similarly follows people eager to see combat over long stretches of like boredom and inaction. Um, but I really liked it because it's it's this. It feels like a great American novel written around the time in which it's set because it has this like beautiful script by James Seamus, which is full of this uh, accurately flowery dialogue at the time. That's it because the book it's based on was written in 1987 and the movie came out in 1999. It has this more modern outlook, <laughs> which I think rids the story yeah. of any potentially problematic material and makes it feel quite subversive. And a lot of that is down to Jeffrey Wright's character. So, like, despite yeah. despite this gang of bushwhackers being pro-slavery and anti-equal rights, there is this black man in their gang called Daniel Holt, played by Jeffrey Wright. One of the group, uh, played by the mentalist himself, Simon Baker. But the, actually, the, <laughs> the cast of this movie is really weird because it's got Jonathan Rhys-Meyers, Mark Ruffalo, Jim Caviezel, Zach Renier, who's recently in Devs. Like, it's either those guys or people who went on to be kind of a big deal in the 21st yeah. century. But uh, Listen, any movie with... Uh, Tobey Maguire and it feels like an artifact <laughs> just doesn't make movies anymore it's so weird but uh, ba- exactly, basically yeah. Baker's next door neighbour as a kid had a slave named Holt that Baker grew very attached to and when that family died he bought the slave and uh, because of this Holt yeah. played by Jeffrey Wright feels very attached to Baker's character and follows him everywhere he goes leading him to essentially fight against his own race 
Uh, Holt's also a, really, okay. a great shooter, so even though they see black people as being less than, most of the bushwhackers are happy to have him around. So yeah. it creates this really interesting dynamic in a number of ways. Like, firstly, like it shows these bushwhackers as being really stupid because they are fighting to keep black people down, all while relying on a black person to save their back or like have <laughs> their back. Also, while Simon Baker and those who've known him a long time are, you know, friendly with Holt, Maguire yeah. our eyes into the world is quite wary of him and. You know, Wright's very quiet for long passages of the movie. He kind of keeps his head down a lot. Uh, but we always see him observing the others carefully. And and you get a sense that it's because he knows that it's a very delicate situation, him being around all these hothead, gun-happy dopes. And anytime yeah. they're around other Confederate soldiers, they have to defend Holt. And I, yeah. it, I'd argue, almost argue, though, that like Wright's the co-lead of the movie because eventually the gang becomes whittled down to just Wright and Maguire and it becomes about their friendship and you know Maguire can read and there's this brilliant scene where Holt asks Maguire's character to read him the letters they've stolen from Union soldiers and reading them they both feel a little guilty because what the people in the letters are saying to their loved ones about the war are the same as how they feel mm, and um, yeah. as they become more close Holt comes out of his shell more and more and finds his voice and reveals himself to be a very warm witty and wise person and uh, this is a spoiler alert, but Baker dies and Holt and Maguire have a bedroom heart to heart, which is really powerful. So Wright says that Baker's death has changed him. And Maguire, whose best friend died previously in the film, says to him, like, I know how you feel. You feel the loss, that hollow feeling. And Wright goes, no, I feel free. That day George Clyde died. It changed me. I felt something that day I ain't never felt. Felt that loss, that hollow feeling. No, what I felt was free. And McGuire says, "Isn't oh, wow. isn't freedom what Baker gave you?" To which he replies, "Like it wasn't his to give. Like that by buying him, Baker made halt." indebted to him and now that baker's dead right for the first time is truly a free man and it, it's it's like, okay it's yeah. a really beautifully played scene by Wright, where everything that he's been thinking but not saying for the whole movie but that audiences have sensed comes out in this perfectly crystallized wave of emotion and um yeah right with the dev is also cool too because Wright often plays these very serious characters but he can be quite funny too in the right role and he has some nice moments yeah. of humor. Like Tommy Maguire's best friend had uh, gotten a girl pregnant before he died. And everyone assumes Maguire is the father. So Tom Wilkinson forces him to marry her. And Maguire's only nine. <laughs> Maguire's only 19 at this point. He thinks boys rule and you know girls drool. And yeah. after they get married, Maguire goes to bunk with Wright. And Wright's like, what are you doing? Go into bed with her. Do I have to explain this to you? <laughs> and then Wright says this thing where he's like, you've done the milk and might as well have the cream. <laughs> but uh, un- unlike something like Green Book like Maguire and Wright's friendship which transcends race and it feels very earned and not like the product of a Hollywood gloss because this is an epic yeah. and, and Lee and Seamus take their time exploring the characters and the environment that shapes them so that by the time we get to the scene about 100 minutes into a 135 minute movie like it feels genuine <laughs> and yeah, it's exactly the type of thing that could only be in a revisionist western like this not in something written close to the time period in which the story is set and um, yeah, and I, I I get why Wright thinks this thinks of this as his best movie because it feels important in what it's talking about, but it also gives him a lot of time to shine. Yeah, maybe yeah. in a way that Basquiat didn't. Um, I'll tell you where it really shines in Angels in America. 
Yes. It's a miniseries based on Tony Kushner's play of the same name, where he play. He's the only actual returning cast member from the Broadway production. Uh, he plays um, Mr. Lies, who's like a uh, hallucination in Mary Louise Parker's character's head. And he plays a gay nurse who is looking after um, Roy Cohn, who's played by Al Pacino, who is like an evil, an incredibly evil man who sent uh, Joel and Ethel Rosenberg to the chair. Or I think it might be David and Ethel Rosenberg. Uh, two spies, anyway, in the 50s in America. And who's big into McCarthyism, all that kind of stuff. Known as a right-wing fixer. Uh, and was a, an advisor to Donald Trump in his early early years. Um, they just made yeah, a really documentary evil about man. Yeah, they did. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, my name is Roy Cohn, I think it's called. But he was also gay, and he ended up dying from AIDS. Um, and Norman Belize, Jeffrey Wright's character, is the gay nurse who is looking after him in his dying days. Her name is Margaret, and she's in love with her daddy's number one slave, and his name is Thaddeus. And she's married, but her white slave owner husband has AIDS, antebellum insufficiently developed sex organs. And so there's a lot of hot stuff going down when Margaret and Thaddeus can catch a spare torrid ten under the cotton-picking moon. And then, of course, the Yankees come, and they set the slaves free, and the slaves string up old daddy and so on. Historical fiction. Somewhere in there, I recall, Margaret and Thaddeus find the time to discuss the nature of love. Her face is reflecting the flames of the burning plantation. And it's a series that really brings home how atrocious a disease and the effects of it of AIDS were across like, like socially, politically, uh, personally, it's all these horror, all these stories inter interweaving through Reagan era politics and uh, the, the HIV and AIDS and the devastation it left in its wake. While every scene with Jeffrey Wright in it, no matter who he's playing, because he plays about four characters in the movie, Mr. Lies, Billy's a homeless man and an angel uh, towards the end of the series. Um, so all those scenes are really good and it's often like great actors delivering really powerful monologues that he often does and you can find a couple of them on YouTube and they're really really good uh, but with everything else it's kind of hit hit or miss because Al Pacino was kind of in the era where he was base- after Heat his kind of like bombast became closer to parody than actual acting mm. and uh, it has a very young Patrick Wilson and Meryl Streep and Mary Louise Parker as this like Mormon um, <laughs> kind of family. He's uh, Patrick Wilson's character is gay, but obviously because of his faith, he's tried to literally pray the gay away and it hasn't worked. And so his relationship with his mother is Meryl Streep and his wife, Mary Louise Parker, has started to um, basically come apart at the seams. And uh, it's... Um, that's where things kind of start to slide because it can also be a lot of hammy actors delivering very hammy monologues Mm. and it's a series of like two halves because parts of it are incredible television and other parts of it never really escape the whole thing of like oh yeah this was definitely a play they've just kind of put cameras in front of people and uh, set some scenes outside yeah well, I, and I want to say a few things because I haven't seen Angels in America, but I want to commend you for watching it in its entirety for this episode because it's it's really <laughs> long. But is Angels yeah. in America the TV show where, this, where it has a scene where Al Pacino's like, fuck legal! He yeah. Said, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Fuck legal, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
But somehow, and I'm, I'm going to lay this out I have uh, in my thesis later, but like Jeffrey Wright is someone who, even when his performance could be seen as hammy, I feel like it always fits the movie. And like he always is very, it's not ham with him, it's prosciutto. Exactly. It's yeah, only yeah. great, the finest of ham. You know, like it, he always. Um, yeah. Yeah. Reins it in just a little bit and it, it, he manages to make yeah. everything feel serious. <laughs> I don't know how he manages yeah. to do it. Because it's funny because in Angels in America, he's a very, as Belize, he's a very out loud and proud uh, gay man uh, who's very um, camp and uh, he's an ex drag queen. He's uh, So he's very feminine. Um, and he uh, all of the like one liners he has, they're usually delivered um, to take down his best friend's ex-boyfriend Lewis who's uh, played by Ben Schenkman and uh, at one point uh, Lewis says that he's dying of grief he's like I'm dying and Jeffrey Wright goes he's dying you just wish you were (laughs) and uh, stuff like that and there's this great speech um, because Lewis is obsessed with America and race and how um, because he's lived his entire life as a white man just he's gay but he also doesn't have the experiences that uh people of color in america would or more um say impoverished um queer people would and he goes on and on and on in one episode to uh believes about how america is great um and then there's this great takedown in the last episode i think where belize says to him the white cracker who wrote the national anthem knew what he was doing he set the word free to a note so high nobody could reach it <laughs> and that just really kind of it really boils down everything the series is about in one line and Jeffrey Wright delivers it so perfectly and he's in the re- pouring rain and it's so you're like yes this is prestige tv before we even had the word prestige tv yeah because it's still talked about angels in america and it, it definitely feels like the defining text on you know yeah. that came after the AIDS crisis uh, on the subject, not Philadelphia yeah. or you know some of the other movies. Yeah, yeah, that's time. true. You're right, actually. Is it okay if I talk about not Ali? The ba- not on the band. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So um, while we all realize years later that Michael Mann's Mammy Vice is a masterpiece, I think the same yeah. attention should be paid to his incredible Muhammad Ali biopic. Uh, the the movie opens with this like thrilling lengthy montage like just opposing like a Sam Cooke concert Ali played by Will Smith training and all the pivotal points of the boxer's childhood and it, and it might be the best thing Michael Mann has ever directed and I think the movie wow. sustains that high energy throughout like linking Ali's life story with the story of America happening around him with such skill and uh, again like Ride with the Devil Jeffrey Wright is playing someone who is quiet and spends a lot of time in the background observing he plays Howard Bingham a photographer and close friend of Ali who was part of the boxer's inner circle he doesn't talk much um, not just because he he lets his camera do his talking because uh, Bingham went on to create arguably the definitive book of photographs of Ali but also because he had a, a very difficult stammer so you know yeah. Wright, Wright has this distinct low voice in the movie and he's very good at accents like around the same time he played the macho Dominican drug lord Peoples Hernandez in Shaft <laughs> and you know like what's what's impressive about Wright in Ali is that he doesn't have a lot of dialogue scenes but despite that still comes away feeling like maybe Ali's our only true friend aside from yeah maybe an unrecognizable John Voight as sports journalist Howard Cassell because uh, Ali at the start of the film 
as he's cementing his reputation as one of the best boxers in the world. Like, he surrounds himself with a posse and there's Wright playing Bingham, there's Jamie Foxx playing Drew Bundini Brown, Ali's corner man and speechwriter who's depicted as having addiction issues. And then there's Barry Shabaka Henley, another great character actor. Yeah. Who plays someone in the film representing the nation of Islam, who Ali was initially affiliated with. And even in his first scene of dialogue, like Wright functions as Ali's voice of reason, defending him from the nation of Islam, who are telling him he shouldn't marry a cocktail waitress played by Jada Pinkett Smith, who's so good in the movie. And Jeffrey Wright says, <laughs> says to Barry Shabaka Henley something along the lines of, I'm not Muslim, you can't boss me around, fat man. And then later, when Ali refuses conscription for the Vietnam War and is stripped of his boxing license, um, passport and title and is sentenced to five years in prison, which is later overturned, Wright's character is the only person who stays with him. Like the Nation of Islam stop associating with him. Fox's character is depicted as having pawned Ali's belt for drink. And unlike the <laughs> others, Bingham wasn't paid by Ali and thus was not dependent on him financially, so their friendship feels the most genuine. And okay, yeah. I think like Ride with the Devil, a lot of Wright's arc is unspoken, but you never for a second doubt his devotion to Ali, something which, from what I've read, seems very faithful to the real-life story, because Bingham died in 2016, yeah. and the New York Times wrote, that uh, Mr. Bingham's calm demeanor allowed him to survive many changes in Ali's world, including four wives, his conversion to Islam, the stripping of his heavyweight title when he refused military service, and his struggles with Parkinson's disease. He served as a gatekeeper for Ali at all times, fielding requests for his services. Mr. Bingham has said he believed he could be honest with Ali because he took no money from him. And then a former New York Times sports reporter and columnist who covered many of Ali's early fights said of him, he was, I think, the kindest, most generous and decent human being in that whole Ali entourage. Um, he really kept him yeah. on the straight and narrow. He had this beautiful innocence about him. And, and I think Wright embodies all those qualities very well in a movie, even when he's not doing a lot of speaking. Like, he manages to embody them without words. Yeah, he does that quite often. Like, mm. in most of his movies, you you wouldn't you won't find him speaking the most dialogue. Well, it's especially true with Syriana. Uh, he plays um, Bennett Holiday, uh, kind of a Washington, D.C. attorney uh, who's investigating... Uh, Connex Oil, the big one of the big oil um, companies. Well, it's a fake company, but you know you can tell it's kind of one of those mid two thousands geopolitical thrillers because it's it's full of like shots of rainy European cities, America depicted as the land of milk and honey, and just incredibly arid Middle Eastern deserts. It's directed by um, Stephen Ga- Gahan. Yeah, Gagan. Who knows? Um, yeah, it's a, it's an examination of like because there's there's three storylines to it, and that they're all to do with oil there's um george clooney's cia operative who is um trying to stop the assassination of a middle eastern oil prince and then there's matt damon who's the economic advisor to that oil prince and jeffrey wright is on basically the other side of the world in america trying to kind of like do his best to stem the tide of corruption that flow that constantly ebbs and flows between united states politics and United States oil companies. And then there's this other story of two um, Indi- uh, Pakistani immigrants, even, who are radicalized by an Egyptian cleric, an Egyptian Muslim cleric. And it's the movie is just an examination of radicalization and the powers that fuel it. So, and you know, it's set, it's set in 2005 and oil fueled everything back then. Jeffrey Wright is he's quiet, very, very quiet. But you can always tell that there's something below the surface because um at the very start of the movie uh you see uh, christopher Plummer doing his gardening and he's like this incredibly powerful um oil magnate or 
some kind of CEO of some sort. You know, that's the thing in this movie. No one's job is very clear, but you all know that they're so, somehow shady. I've heard it's a confusing movie and, to follow. Uh, it is, yes, very much so. It requires a couple of watches, I'd say. Maybe I should have done that. <laughs> I feel, though, it's one but, of those, from what I've read about it, it's one of those movies where being confused is sort of the point. The scope is so massive and everyone on the ground is kind of struggling to keep up with all the developments that are happening exactly, worldwide. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, there's a point at the start of the art the movie where, as I said, Christopher Plummer is um, doing his gardening and uh, he's talking to someone you can't see. Uh, you know, he makes this big, big speech about people being sheep. And he says to the person, uh, maybe you're a sheep everyone thinks is a lion. And then it just cuts to Jeffrey Wright, who looks just, he just looks like a pencil pusher, like a nerd. And it turns out to be totally true because he is the quiet, he's the quietest man in the room, but he's also the guy, like there's loads of shots of him just like, looking at, peop- at people and reading people and uh, saying very little. But like they say, it's the man who says nothing that you have to be most afraid of. Hmm. So did you like the movie overall? Because it won Clooney his uh, long-awaited Oscar. Yeah, I feel like... I don't know, it feels like it's... Because it's taking on an issue that is so big and broad, it um, never feels like it fully succeeds. Um, Whereas a movie, a similar kind of geopolitical thriller like um, to do with the Middle East, like Zero Dark Thirty, does succeed because its sole focus is one man. Yeah. I was going to make a joke and say lines yeah. for lambs. <laughs> um, I want to talk about Broken City, the which is um, on Irish Netflix right now and is a great example of Wright always being good at judging the tone of whatever he's in and giving a performance that could be hammy but is not. What Like what we were talking about with Angels in America. Um, yeah. so Mark Wahlberg, um, who produced this movie and I imagine wanted to make the sort of like tough neo-noirs he seems to enjoy, uh, plays Billy Taggart, yeah. this NY cop who killed a rapist or murderer who walked on a technicality and he was cleared of the shooting but the mayor, played by Russell Crowe and the police chief, Carl Fairbanks, played by Wright force him to leave the police department over the controversy uh, Wright's character is this guy who's willing to work outside the law for the good of the city uh, but only up to a point you know um, yeah. so after this opening, uh, the movie jumps forward a couple of years and Wahlberg has become a PI and uh, the mayor, who has since become quite shady, hires him for some investigation work and he gets drawn into a conspiracy. And in the time that's passed, Wright seems to have switched allegiances from Crow's mayor to his political rival, a guy brilliantly named Jack Valiant, played by the great, <laughs> really underrated Barry Pepper. Oh, wow. Uh, my letterbox review was like... You love a sprinkling of pepper in your movie. I love a sprinkling of pepper in my movies. And uh, like this is a movie that got negative reviews when it was released and... It's pulpy and formulaic for sure, but it's also like quite well put yeah. together and is one of those $35 million adult thrillers that have been kind of lost in a yeah. American cinema landscape now mostly focused on either franchise films for the whole family or low-budget Blumhouse horrors. And like in Broken yeah. City, the cast is amazing too. Like It's Catherine Zeta-Jones, Kyle Chandler, Griffin Dunn, James Ranzone, and Alan Hughes directed it who made Menace to Society and Dead Presidents. And the screenplay has some good lines as well. And uh, like Wright is playing this angry, intense, intimidating head cop. The type where like Wahlberg walks into a room and Wright says, sit down, detective. And Wahlberg immediately shoots him like a worried look. Like he just projects authority. No, well. And later he's given yeah. some like OTT lines to say like, 
he, when he says to Wahlberg, Paul Andrews is dead. What? You think you can just piss on him and walk away? Or he says at another point, <laughs> this is an execution. This is a fucking assassination. Did you finger Andrews? And he just like makes them sing. Like they're like, if they were in like a, a sketch show spoofing, you know, like cop yeah, procedurals, yeah. you'd be like, ah, oh, that's so funny. But like Wright makes it like work. And like another bit is when he arrests someone powerful and the guy says like, you really think a jury of my peers in New York City will convict me? And he replies, I'm just the handcuffs guy. <laughs> <laughs> like and there's all, there's also a reveal about his character at the end that comes out of nowhere which I won't spoil but the delivery of the line of information and the way the music kicks in at the end is so funny but it like it ultimately works and I can't deny it so overall like <laughs> go watch Broken City and I, I think other examples from his filmography of Wright playing someone that could be hammy but isn't are like Shaft and the Source Code where he's given like these like big performances yeah but never so big it takes you out of the movie and like as i said earlier like instead of ham he just gives you a fine well-cut italian prosciutto yeah um, you watched only lovers left alive right i did yeah he plays uh which i can what i assume is a pseudonym he plays dr watson uh mm. who's a doctor at a blood bank who provides um adam uh who's played by he was one of the vampires in only lovers left alive played by tom hiddleston uh he provides him with blood uh, type O negative is the blood Adam wants um, and to be honest his role amounts to about two minutes of screen time so we probably won't be talking about this for very long and the only major thought I had about this movie was why aren't more horror movies made in Detroit because mm. that city is dead and empty I didn't cover Only Lovers Left Alive because I, I remembered his role being pretty tiny and I think he's worked with Jarmusch before so you, I think he's in Broken Flowers as well but um, Only Lovers Left yeah. Alive is a gorgeous movie I, I adore that film yeah it is really it's um, a real uh, tactile movie like it's got real substance to its style because there's uh, like Adam Tom Hiddleston's vampire is obsessed with all these stuff that like sounds or looks or feels good and the movie really uh pushes for that kind of uh, atmosphere and vibe like you get a sense that everything and every piece of production design was really well chosen for the movie mm. he's playing a rock star like all the set dressing all the costumes is incredible mm. yeah he's playing a rock star i like to think it's like um, what if jack white was a vampire what what do you mean what if <laughs> <laughs> but uh and there's that amazing scene where tilda swinton is like packing her suitcase to go on holidays and then she opens it and it's just books yeah yeah amazing <laughs> what's funny about um jeffrey wright's role is that it's basically he just gets like the one joke because every time he sees him he's like he sees adam adam has a different name so he, he looks at his name tag he's like good evening dr faust <laughs> or it's like uh you're looking off the pale awfully pale there dr caligari <laughs> um would you, you want to talk about hold the dark Yes, Which, yes, let's talk um, about Hold the Dark. I think it's the only movie on uh, that we kind of overlinked on, or intersected on in this, like, we both watched it to, like, fresh. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's kind of a rare lead role for Jeffrey Wright, although I'd argue it is for the yeah. first 20 minutes and sort of forgets about him, even though I really like the movie. I'll break, I can break down the plot, so, like, in December 2004, Russell Core, a writer who studies wolf behavior, played by Jeffrey Wright, is summoned to Alaska by a woman named Medora, played by Riley Kyo, really creepy. She says a wolf yeah. has stolen her six-year-old kid and wants Russell to kill it. She's alone because her husband Vernon, played by Alexander Skarsgård, is fighting in Afghanistan. So you come to kill it? To kill the one that took him? 
I came to help if I can, to explain this if I can. Russell's this quiet, introspective, weary guy, and we later learn that he's estranged from his daughter, and he discovers pretty quickly that Midori isn't being entirely truthful, shall we say? And yeah. know, once that discovery is made, it kicks off a police investigation fronted by James Badge Dale's character, and simultaneously Vernon returns from the war after being injured in an ambush. And then I think from there, it sort of becomes Dale and Skarsgård's show as opposed to Wright, which is a little jarring, I think. Yeah, I think so too. Um, it's... I think it's one of the one of these movies where I think attracts character actors like flies to honey or bees to honey even mm. where it's just like incredibly like meaty kind of lyrical dialogue um uh, it has a really specific mood and tone to it and it's also like the kind of film you, re- you that as we were saying rarely happens anymore where it's like a an an adult thriller mm. that uh had a budget of roughly $35 million and is directed by one of the, probably the best director of um, adult thrillers at the moment, Jeremy Saulnier. Yeah, who made a Green Room and Blue Ruin and did some directing duties yeah. on the last season of True Detective, which is really good. Yeah, and it also it's also like a movie with a really mean sense of humour as well because um, obviously when Vernon comes back from the war and he meets Jeffrey Wright, he calls him Wolfman, which is incredible. But um, like he's at the morgue to pick up his son's body. And James Badgedale's character is like, we asked him to be here if you have any questions. And uh, Vernon looks at Russell and goes, do you raise the dead? <laughs> and Russell says, no, then I have no questions. Yeah. And it's just it's horrible, but it's so funny as well. <laughs> but the, what's kind of a bummer about it is that the poster has Jeffrey Wright. And he's carrying this machine gun, or like this kind of sniper rifle, and he's dressed up in yeah. all like the Arctic gear. And you're like, oh man, Jeffrey Wright in an action movie, this is going to be so good. And he yeah. doesn't really do any. And like Skarsgård has like that incredible Afghanistan sequence where he's like mowing down people from like the gunner seat of a tank. Yeah. He, then he's gunning down the enemy and then turns on his like fellow soldier who's like horrible and like stabs <laughs> the shit out of him. And then as he's like chilling out after that, gets shot in the neck and all his people and yeah. like he's bleeding out and then his friends are like oh it's only a hickey and like he's such a badass and then later on he's like <laughs> killing people with a crossbow and then james badge dale is sort of front and center of that like amazing eight minute shootout which is like almost like heat in how good intense yeah, it is yeah and like i just feel yeah. like jeffrey wright is sort of relegated to kind of info dumping and don't get me wrong i think he's very good at it and he's so skilled at engaging audiences just with a sheer presence so like i think filmmakers often use him to kind of dump important exposition and you know yeah he just kind of ends up commenting on what dale and scars do and delivers some like effective if kind of slightly cliched lines about his past and his relationship with his daughter and like and it works like when he says like yeah. the behavioral term is savaging when he's describing how like wolves can attack their offspring like i get chills yeah, yeah. but um it's just it's just slightly weird and i think it might be the point of the movie because like the move the screenplay by macon blair makes a lot of allusions to mythology and those tales need a teller and the movie's last scene with jeffrey yeah Wright yeah said it's him saying to his daughter like i'll tell you the story so a movie i really love and it's such a cult movie because like i don't think all the gestures it makes to like history mythology nature and war unify because it's a lot of people sort of speaking in tongues and like alluding yeah, to things yeah. in the past that aren't really explained fully because like there, there's implications that alexander skarsgård is like possessed by a demon <laughs> at one point yeah. and like 
I don't know how they all come together, although I think it's what makes people like us want to keep like revisiting it and like we'll do so for years to come. Yeah. But I think what's what you really can't deny about the movie is how strong Jeremy Sonia's direction is, like like how muscular it is yeah. and the way he captures like brutality and you're captured violence yeah. in all yeah. its brutality and horror and like that Afghanistan yeah. sequence and that like eight minute shootout are like really amazing. Yeah, it's a film. It really is a film weighed down by its by like constant and often dismissive allusions to like the supernatural. And I think it'd be better if it went all in or left it out. Like, there's just a bit that really um, where Russell Core is in bed and he sees uh, Margot uh, in bed beside him. Medora, sorry, yeah. and he say he sees her in bed beside him in his hotel room, and she just whispers, "There's something wrong with the sky." And you're like, ooh, but that never comes back. And well, she like, says she says to him at the end like, when they're in the kind of cave, like, "I told you there was something wrong with the sky," but like that was a dream he had. <laughs> like she didn't actually say. Yeah, it to exactly. Him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's a lot of and like it never. It never really uh, knows where to put its foot uh, when it comes to these kind of to all the illusions it's making. Yeah, and I think which is this problem, but it's such the film has such kind of as you said, like such weight and muscularity to it that you kind of stop caring about that mm. at a certain point. And I think it kind of works on a scene-to-scene basis, just not really all when it comes together, because there's that really interesting scene where Skarsgård goes to meet the trapper when yeah. he's going to look, and the, the trapper's saying all this stuff that, like, you came to visit me when you were a child. Your parents thought there was something wrong with you. And it's a really interesting, striking, and like well-played scene, but it it, it is sort of inconsequential yeah. to anything that happens. Yeah. Yeah. Can I talk... I want to talk a little bit about how, like... You know, we're talking a lot about these like really weighty, serious movies, and like yeah. right, I I do think of him in my head as being a very serious guy. But like as I mentioned, Arrive with the Devil, he can be quite good at comedy, and recently he sort of leaned a bit more into that. So yeah, probably the best example is his uncredited appearance in Game Night. So, yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, Game Night is a movie I love. I think it's like one of the more perfect comedies to come out in the last couple of years and it centers on jason yeah. bateman and rachel mcadams who are this nerdy couple who love to play games and have a weekly game night with their friends and bateman has a brother played by kyle chandler who i mentioned as being in broken city who's a who's richer and seems cooler and bateman's very jealous of him and he and his wife let his brother organize a game night and he organizes this interactive mystery with actors so enter jeffrey wright in a suit black shades and one of his like <laughs> many perfectly quaffed beards and Billy Magnus and one of Bateman's friends is like sunglasses at night it's legit <laughs> when he sees him <laughs> uh, and Wright starts delivering this like expository dialogue like he does in Hold the Dark and Source Code explaining the rules of the game and everyone is just watching him like man he's so good at acting Agent Henderson FBI sunglasses at night it's legit sit down please I'll get right to the point. The uh, Bureau has been tracking a ring of violent kidnappers in this very neighborhood. And we have reason to believe that one of you may be their next victim. (laughs) And then people barge in and like knock out Jeffrey Wright and kidnap Kyle Chandler. And it turns out he's wealthy from some like shady activities, uh, Kyle Chandler. But everyone thinks it's part of the game. And it's great because it's so meta because like Wright's playing an actor who specializes in the type of roles Wright plays. And this is a great line where he, yeah, like, yeah. he wakes up after being knocked out and he's like, I quit Disney Cruises for this bullshit. It's, it's so good. 
Um, before we finish, I want to talk a little bit about his kind of relationship with HBO. Because as you mentioned, he was in Angels in America for HBO. And I think since then, they've just, every couple of years, they just keep pulling him back, the network. Cause, yeah, yeah. Because like, he joins Boardwalk Empire in its fourth season playing Dr. Valentin Narcisse, maybe one of the series' greatest villains, that this highly educated Trinidadian American underworld figure based out of Harlem. One of those baddies that's really soft-spoken, yet so menacing. He sort of became the devil to Chalky White, the character played by Michael K. Williams on the show. He was really menacing. And then, like, not soon after that, he got the role of Bernard Lowe on Westworld, the series about robots yeah. in a Western-inspired theme park. He plays a programmer of the robot software, and Bernard is a guy where there's more than just meets the eye, if you catch my drift. Yeah, so, yeah. Like, spoilers for those who haven't seen Westworld. It's revealed halfway through season one he's a robot man. Oh, okay. <laughs> Turn, turns out Anthony Par- Anthony Hopkins' park manager built him as a replica of his former partner, Arnold Weber, which is an anagram of Bernard Lowe. Bernard, tell these men what you just told me. Why? What do you want to do with Analysis. Them? What did you just tell me, Bernard? Peter Abernathy's control unit is in Sector 16, Zone 4. But um, I suppose what's cool about Jeffrey Wright in Westworld is his dueling nature. Because when he's Bernard, it's a typical Jeffrey Wright performance. Very quiet, introspective human. He believes he had a son who died, but it turns out that's only his robot's backstory needed to make him more real. However, Jesus when, Christ. He, when he is in Arlen mode and controlled by Hopkins, he's essentially the Terminator. And in the first season, Bernard was forced to kill his co-worker and lover Theresa. And it's it's kind of like oh, yeah. Mancurian candidate style. Like he's activated and in a trance-like state kills her after she learned too much about the park. And there's a scene where like after snapping back into reality and learning what he did, he immediately begins like hyperventilating and sobbing and underst- not understanding why he would do something like that because he loved her. And it's it's really distressing and horrifying to watch. And it's, it's, <laughs> it's all on, right? However, like while the series used to get a lot of mileage out of that juxtaposition between the human and the robotic sides of Wright's character's personality, I feel the showrunners haven't really found out how to make that as compelling over the following two seasons. Also, the show has pretty much rebooted itself into a... Uh, a female-focused show starring Tandy Newton and Evan Rachel Wood's characters, also Tessa Thompson's to a lesser extent, and it's begun yeah, to yeah. it's begun to link the robots oppression. Often people come to Westworld to sleep with the female hosts to female oppression, and while that's laudable, and a lot of shows I really like found their footing when they rebooted to focus on their women characters like that, like Halt and Catch Fire or Ozark recently. Wright has been yeah. relegated to that hold the dark exposition delivering role and again like it's something he does really well and like no one can deliver a line like she's throwing them off their loops with as much portent yeah. as he can but is less interesting than when the show was in its early run now I'd written this before I watched the Westworld season 3 finale and I watched it last night yeah. and it contains probably the only proper dramatic scene Wright was given this season so Bernard visits Arnold's wife who he remembers previously thinking she was his wife and she's old now and has dementia and they talk about Arnold's son who yeah. died as a boy and Wright says like I just can't let him go and his voice goes up like that at the end Oof. and it's kind of like he's surprised he's crying because like he knows the memories yeah. are artificial but they feel real and I cried yeah. despite logically knowing it was so unearned because none of it had been mentioned this season <laughs> or maybe even since season one so more of that yeah. next season please yeah. So right's back, I'm sure, for the next season. Well, thank God for that. Yeah. And then he's got like some awesome movies coming up because he's um 
going to be in the French Dispatch, Wes Anderson's new movie. Yeah. He plays Felix in Bond, kind of Bond's like American ally and he's really good in those movies. Um he's also going to be as you mentioned in the Batman and then he's going to be an honest thief yeah. with Liam Neeson, which sounds great. A bank Ooh. robber tries to turn himself in because he's falling in love and wants to live an honest life, but when he realizes the feds are more corrupt than he is, he must fight back to clear his name. Could Deadly. be good, could be good. On that note, will we wrap it up? Yep. Sounds good to yeah. me. Please rate, review, subscribe where you get podcasts. Email us at iknowthatfacepod at gmail.com if you'd like to, you know, give us a suggestion on who we should cover on the show or you're somebody who works in film and journalism or podcasts who would like to appear on. Um, follow us at Twitter at iknowthatfacep1. Follow us on Instagram at iknowthatface. Uh, special thanks to Charlene Fernandez and Anais Abui for keeping up our Instagram. A lot of really cool videos and like memes and posts going up there. Andrew, where can people find more of your work? You can find me at the Headstuff Gaming section where we talk about what, why, and how we play. You can follow me at the Minute on Headstuff. Um, also, I've written articles for Hot Press. I've written articles for Travel Ireland. So if you want to go back and have a read of them, a lot of stuff to be reading. Until next time, see you later, Cinephiles. Bye-bye. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network.